This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 7, A Changing Oceanic Europe. In the Atlantic world, a geoeconomic shift occurs during the early 17th century. The Mediterranean stagnates, and the economic and political power of Northwest Europe becomes dominant, economically the most sophisticated area in Europe. As the vital maritime center of Europe moves northward, we see the North Atlantic emerging as the heart of the world ocean. Portugal and Spain are the first states to achieve a global maritime presence. The Netherlands would be the first state to achieve global maritime preeminence. Rivalries rage among the Netherlands, France, and England in war and in commerce. Spain, too, is part of the big four, but Iberia fails to make an economic takeoff. The English Channel functions as Europe's new key strategic funnel, offering direct access to ocean for the Baltic and the Low Countries. This gullet of Europe remains key today, along with the Malacca Straits, now the world's two major shipping passages. Northwest Europe has a very long coast in proportion to its territory, an unusual geography that increases the possibilities for continental and oceanic influences to meet and cross-fertilize. During the 16th and first half of the 17th century, some major changes occurred in oceanic Europe. Improvements in administrative and strategic competencies that deeply affected international history and thus oceanic affairs. One such was the formation and integration of territorial states the traditional landmark for that process being the Congress of Westphalia in 1648. Centralized, usually monarchical state power was now on the upswing. Other political or quasi-political forms were on the wane. Both the supranational, the church, the dynastic state, or the micronational, the Baltic Hansa towns like Lübeck or Danzig, or the Mediterranean Italian ones, conspicuously Venice and Genoa. All these maritime city-states were thalassic, not pelagic, regional, not oceanic. The phenomenon of the territorial state would ultimately translate into advantage for Europe in its thrust for global power, because this was the creating of comparatively efficient political organisms on a larger scale than the city-state. It was not a smooth process. Endemic warfare raged both within nations and between nations. Civil conflicts periodically convulsed France. But war did not deeply affect civilians. It was ritualized and seasonal. Armies 
went into winter quarters. Navies did not put to sea in winter. This was a great age for middle-sized states, Sweden, Denmark, most notably the Netherlands. These were able to achieve power status far out of proportion to their bases in population and economic resources. The larger states remained less efficient. For all states, power was based on the ability to organize resources and people efficiently. For navies, it was to design, build, and maintain efficient warships, to forge dependable and cheap guns, to fashion competent crews out of men with various skills, and to lead them into combat and in long-distance operations to far corners of the globe. This was a substantial and demanding endeavor. We see territorial states growing within an evolutionary pattern of sometimes surprisingly rapid rise and decline of maritime, political, and economic spheres of influence, scattered abroad globally, formed and nurtured by sea lanes of communication. Entrepot seaport cities served as nerve centers for these states and follow a pattern of influence in which Lisbon supplants Venice, Antwerp deposes Bruges, and Amsterdam seizes leadership from all. We see an expansion and restructuring of interregional seaborne trade. New goods and more goods find a wider market, a mass market. Staples supplement luxuries with cotton cloth as well as spices, and tea for the masses as well as porcelain for the privileged. New trade patterns are emerging. Warfare at sea experiences a technological transformation. Warships become specialized craft, purpose-built, with strong hulls and heavy guns, not simply converted merchant ships had it as often had been the case before. Navies gradually become permanent, emerging as technologically and administratively the most complex organizations in early modern Europe. Navies are large-scale devourers of capital, but also contributors. They foster wide-ranging interactions between producers and users. Crews consume tons of biscuit, salt meat, beer, wine, and water. Guns require great quantities of shot and powder. Ships demand extensive amounts of other naval materials, including canvas for sails, timber for hull, masts, and spars, iron fittings like spikes and nails, anchor and chain, were all required for the elaborate machine that was the multi-masted ship combining square with Latin triangular sails. A new combination of rig meant greater speed, 
and increasing ability to sail close to the wind and greater maneuverability. Sailing is not a static art. It experiences constant incremental change. This meant that performance was constantly improving. European oceanic power may have been limited largely to the range of a gun on deck or at gunport below, but this firepower had a potential global blue water reach. Thus, Europeans could begin to compete and wage war with each other far from home coastal waters. Combat becomes global. World War I in the 20th century is a misnomer. The 17th and 18th centuries experienced world wars, but they were limited, not total. The local people were usually ancillary to the conflict. Unless co-opted, local people were not fighting as belligerents. Europeans themselves were the only belligerents in these intercontinental struggles. They were more interested in fighting each other than fighting non-Europeans. Asian states were sometimes able to exploit European rivalries, to play off one against the other, to use the barbarians against the barbarians, that ancient, cunning, and continuing Chinese diplomatic practice. Thus, we can say that in the final stages of 17th century oceanic revolution, Europe's maritime fringes were spawning a unique complex of phenomena, an ocean world of new monarchical states operating in a flux of power, conducting global warfare at sea, nurturing changing and growing patterns of global trade. But still, aside from the Americas, in much of the globe, largely a fringe phenomenon, confined to open saltwater space where they were unchallenged. The Dutch would create a new kind of global pelagic state. We look forward to having you on board for our exploration of what this implausible entity would do in Episode 8. Revolution at Sea is written and spoken by John Curtis Perry, with additional voicing by Jamie Rosenberg. Production by 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Post-production and distribution by Albert Buichadé-Ferré. Goodbye until next time.